nice to be back here. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think the last time I was here, I think it was in the year 2000, there was a teacher's meeting and His Holiness was here and there was a large gathering. I think this is the last time I've been. Mm-hmm. So it's the last time we were here was 2003 when we substituted for Ajahn Amaro. Oh, and that's right. Day long that's right. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> 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 that's right. Yeah, thank you. Um, I understand you've been um, contemplating the theme of the Four Noble Truths, and it's been an extended contemplation, and I'm happy to hear that, because the Four Noble Truths is... Um, important and there's an awful lot of um, ground that it can create as well as be a platform for more inquiry. So I'm happy to continue on the same theme. So I thought this morning to speak on the theme of the embodied truths Mm. and to see if it's possible where we can tie together the whole um, process of the Four Noble Truths with the experience of an embodied understanding of their realization. It seems maybe pertinent, having started this with a yoga class, I imagine everybody here has an appreciation for the importance of uh, a body as a basis for understanding. And, uh, you know, with that kind of dedication and that kind of experience, One knows the difference between a body which is tight and cramped where there's awareness present and when there's awareness absent. So having spent time to create uh, or have a yoga practice, you know, an hour-long yoga practice, already there is a, a strong appreciation of the importance of mindfulness and kindness and wisdom as it is an embodied experience and how to use posture and breath and attention in that way to facilitate a body relaxing and opening and coming into balance so our attention is grounded in our physical experience. So when we then look at the Four Noble Truths, when we look at the First Noble Truth of that there is suffering, so uh, immediately we can experience suffering in terms of the unpleasant physical sensations that we have. And no matter how much yoga we do, no matter how much organic food we eat, and no matter whether or not we recycle, we will still have unpleasant feelings in our body. It sort of comes with the package no matter how kind of um, much opportunity that we have for wholesomeness in our lives. So physical unpleasant sensations comes with the package when you have a body that is part of the territory. And when we live with awareness of body, we know not to disconnect or disassociate ourselves from what's actually happening, but learn to move into and feel those experiences directly from a body sense, not from an intellectual sense, but from a body sense. So the first noble truth of of suffering we can experience as painful physical sensations, We can experience it as painful mental sensations. So moods, darkness, depression, despair, a sense of hopelessness, fear. We can know all of those as a tangible physical correlate when we allow our bodies to open and relax and sense 
what it is that we're feeling. The experience of beginning something new, so the birth pains of beginning, we can know as a physical experience of what that actually feels like. I imagine within this room there are many mothers, and the actual physical memory of what birth has been for you is part of your body memory. You know it. And so birth is something which has elements which have unpleasant feeling in them. And then all of us here have the experience of we are older today than we were yesterday. And the process of some of us, our memories don't work as well as they did, or different parts of our bodies are not as flexible as they used to, or the process of aging, of not having everything under the same kind of control we experienced when we were 18 or 19 or 20, if you were healthy then. Some people don't have that good fortune. And then the physical experience of allowing the whole process to wind down in what we refer to as death. And we are all living here present, but being present with somebody else's dying process would be something that would impact us and we could know that impact in the way that our bodies respond. So our physical body is a foundation and that foundation is a place where we can return to as a reference point for the first noble truth, how we know suffering. That it is something which needs to be understood. And then as we relax and settle into our physical incarnation and our physical embodiment, there can be a way of being with suffering in a way where we sense, I understand this. This has been understood. This is known to me. It has been understood. So we know that there's physical unpleasant sensation and that there's moods and feelings that arise and some of them are difficult but we can also see that the real problem isn't so much the arising but what we are doing with it so the cause of suffering is not the immediacy of the present moment it's our wanting or not wanting it to be that way And we can see, you know, we have a strong desire for pleasure. We have a desire not to feel pain. Most of us do not appreciate fear. And we have all kinds of other experiences that come through our minds. The, the desire to belong. The, the desire to exist. The desire to be or become someone. And that desire also can shift in the desire not to be, or to disappear, or to be no one. And so as we're working with the Four Noble Truths and we come to the Second Noble Truth, that there is a cause of suffering, we can move attention away from the primary object of what's arising and focus on the relationship to it. How we're experiencing it. Is it coming into a field of wanting or not wanting? And we can experience that wanting and not wanting in our body. It can be a direct knowing of desire 
as a physical experience. Oftentimes our posture is moved, tilted forward. There's a kind of tension, there's a grasping. And so we can begin to have a somatic equivalent that we orient our attention towards in looking at the cause of suffering. What does desire feel like? What does not wanting feel like? Oftentimes, you can feel yourself leaning back or tightening down or somehow wanting to move away from. And so there can be a physical experience that can allow our attention to recognize, relate to, and understand the cause of suffering. When we come to the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, we can see that as we are able to bring attention and awareness to what's arising, make space for it and breathe into it, allow it to be, then there's a shift that takes place. And we can experience that shift in our body, what it feels like to begin to let go of wanting things to be otherwise. Moving towards what we want, pushing away what we don't want. And we can see that there's more space to breathe, there's less tension in the chest, there's more less tightness in the abdomen. And so the again, the physical body can become an anchor for the recognition, the investigation, and the realization of the end of suffering. And then we come to the path, the path that supports the knowing of suffering, the knowing of its cause, and the realization of the end of suffering. And again, we can begin to see how there is an embodied correlate of the Eightfold Path. You can see the difference between right view and wrong view in terms of what happens in our body. Right thought and wrong thought in terms of the way our body opens and relaxes or tightens and contracts. And in terms of the activities that we make in our life, the actions that we do, the speech that we have, our livelihood, our relationships, our relationships with integrity, our relationships with our own sexuality, our relationships with our emotions, we can begin to get a sense of when we are moving in accordance with the Dhamma, there's an openness that we can trust. And when there's something that's in discord, there's a resistance and a tension that begins to assert itself. Concentration as a body experience is a very, uh, the tangible experience of a deep relaxation. And so it's important to learn to cultivate relaxation as a pathway for a platform for meditation. In the same way, it's important to have access to our own goodness 
as a direct experience, as a way to give us leverage and ground for working with some of the things that arise which are not so straightforward or difficult or challenging our identity or who we've taken ourselves to be. So a sense of relaxation, a body experience of concentration is a tangible one that we can begin to know and recognize and relax into and cultivate. And that has a very different effect on the system than trying to push our minds into a particular frame. Learning and cultivating a deep sense of relaxation of the body. And then from that, there's naturally a connected sense of attention and awareness and ease that comes with then what is arising. One of the um, real important tools of using the body as a foundation, of referencing the body in terms of an embodied awakening, is is that the body never lies. It doesn't have any capacity to lie or to deceive. And it, it doesn't have any other reference point other than the present moment. So it doesn't have a past, and it doesn't have a future. If I were to ask you to stand up in the past, or to move your arm in the future, what would that be like? So the only way that we can interact with our body is in the present moment. And because the body has the present moment as its only reference and has no capacity to distort or to deceive, then within that we have a a range of, of, of moving into learning the language of how to understand what is being said and learning how to work with the body experience and the sensations in order to allow a sense of being congruent with a truth that is resonant with us and learning the signals and signs of what happens when we move outside of that. So the embodied truth is very much using the analytical framework of the Four Noble Truths and continuing to reference each level of the insight as an embodied experience feeling what it feels like, how the body moves, responds, opens, contracts, shifts. And when there is a deep knowing what that looks like, feels like, what is the sense of, aha, that the body knows this is right and this is the right path. I think for many of us 
who are meditation practitioners and even in supporting other people in their practice, there's the inevitable question of what is the right thing to do at any particular time. You know, how do I practice? What's needed right now? And one of the things that the the Buddhist tradition has as its legacy is a tremendously rich map and instructions on different ways of practicing. And these different ways of practicing include bringing uh, balance to the conditions that we experience, include knowing how to work with the breath and the mind and learning how to relax and learning how to work with different mind states, learning how to see them in a particular way, as well as learning how to rest in the bare awareness of what's arising. So the entire field of meditation can be effectively summarized as working with conditions and resting in the unconditioned. And all of us are constantly in an inquiry of what's appropriate right now. So we can't just decide, all right, I'm going to rest in the unconditioned and do that for the next eight years. (laughs) And forget the laundry and forget breakfast and forget the telephone calls and forget mom. You know, because obviously the unconditioned is expressed through our ways of relating to and interacting in the world. But if the only thing that we're doing is working on bringing balances to the conditions that we experience in the world, you know, we can have an awful lot of balance and still be very miserable. Because conditions by their nature are conditioned. And because of that, they change. They're not reliable. And because they're not reliable, they aren't something that we can hold on to or use for our ultimate happiness and satisfaction. So, the question then is, is what do we do at any particular time? Do we pick up techniques and tools? Do we do metta meditation? Do we contemplate death? Do we bring forward the Four Noble Truths? Do we look at suffering? Do we look at the end of suffering? I mean, the end, the list is endless. And the more resources that we have, also the possibility for the more confusion that we can cause. Because what's possible at any particular moment then expands. We have the ability to change our attention and bring it to an infinite number of places. And what choice we make is going to affect what we experience and how we relate to our experience is going to have a huge impact on whether we feel a sense of well-being or not. So how to practice is not a small question. And there's a lot to be said in terms of developing tools and resources and skills and being able to feel out what is needed at any particular point in time. But when we use the body as a reference point, start asking the body what is needed, then it gets a lot more simple. It's a lot less confusing. And the answers are very direct in terms of whether what is needed is what you're doing or something else. And so when the body is used as a reference point and a basis to return to again and again in terms of being able to orient what's happening in one's practice, 
One can tell when one's feeling tense and tight, one needs to have more space and relaxation and ease. When the energy is very, very low, one needs either to honor and respect that or do things which allow it to gently emerge. And so we can cut through enormous complexity and confusion by just returning and referencing what's actually happening right now as a physical embodied experience and what is being asked for. So, you know, foundation, the first foundation of mindfulness is not, you know, meditation for people with special needs. (laughs) It's actually a a lifelong practice that can serve all of us in, in a very rich way, depending on the way in which we bring our attention to it. You know, for myself, I don't know if it's been true for you, but for me, just learning to be in my body has been a pretty long project, you know. It hasn't been a short-term project. And for years, I had all kinds of highly developed strategies for doing everything except actually feel what was happening in my body. And the more I can feel my body and be present with what's happening, and the more I feel like I can be honest, I'm congruent with my values, and I'm not um, stepping outside of appropriate boundaries either in terms of what my own personal capacities are or in terms of the myriad of complexities that arise in relationship with others. So I'm not bringing this topic just because it's, it's um, a nice idea. You know, for me, this has been a, a, a transformational shift in my relationship with practice. It it has made a huge difference to me to begin to orient towards what is happening with the body. And, you know, I can say I, I have lessons to learn still. You know, there's more learning. And there's certainly places where I... I am get out of balance and I do need to come back and reattend. But the more I have been able to use this as a reference, the more I feel grounded and capable in in the things that I have brought my attention to. So I leave this as a little offering uh, for your um, inquiry to see if it resonates. And if it resonates good. And if it doesn't resonate, just leave it. And if somehow or another I manage to speak in a way which goes against your deepest understanding of what the truth is, then somehow find a way to come talk to me about that. Because this is a a sacred relationship. And even though I am the one who apparently is talking, ideally what's happening is there's a perfect monologue, perfect dialogue that's happening with everyone. And the way one really knows if one is in resonance is by attending inwardly to your somatic response to what it is that you're hearing. So the instructions for listening to a Dhamma talk is to have 90% of your attention in your inner body awareness and only 10% of your attention listening to the content of the talk. And when that is set up in that way, then you know when you hear something that's true. 
And you know when you hear something that either doesn't resonate or is off the mark. And that knowing is a somatic knowing that then registers about what to do with what it is that you hear. All right? So I will leave you with this and open things up for questions. And uh, and then we will uh, have a few minutes for questions. And then I brought my alms bowl here. We can have a little bit of a meal, uh, an alms bowl sharing together. Okay? Thank you.